This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Rob Tombrella is a pastor at Grace Church and the speaker on this message. We have been in a series called The Gathering, and it's all about kind of this moment together. When we gather together to worship, to hear the word preached, it's kind of what should our attitude be? What are the things we should be thinking about? What should we expect? That kind of thing. And uh, tonight, we are going to be talking about the gathering in terms of uh, serving. Now, serving is one of those topics that we can assume. Uh, it's one of those things that we can, it's, it's needed, and we're always kind of asking for volunteers and servants in various places, and so uh, it can just be always there and not something we think about. Well, tonight we're going to look at what it means when we gather to serve. And if you could take your Bibles or your device and turn to Luke chapter 22, we're going to look at verses 14 through 27. Now in Luke 22, this is a storyline. This is like a narrative. we, We we jump right into a story that's already been fully developed. And anytime you're looking at a gospel, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you're going to find stories inside of stories. And so we're going to look at a story inside of a story. And our little section that we're going to be looking at this evening, uh, the story goes like this. You're first going to see a holy gathering, kind of the first holy gathering. Then you're going to see a major dispute. And then you're going to see a radical teaching from Jesus. He just brings a teaching right there in the middle of the dispute. And we're going to see together that when we gather to worship, we gather to serve. When we gather to worship, we gather to serve. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see through your word what we're supposed to see. Lord, that you would open up our ears to hear your voice. For when we look at your word, we hear your voice speaking to us. And Lord, give us the heart and the feet and the hands quick and ready to obey anything that we hear from you this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's look at the first part of this story in Luke 22, and let's, let's peer into this holy gathering. Now in verse 14 of Luke 22, you see this, it says, when the hour came, He reclined at table, he being Jesus, table being this gathering of his disciples. And it says, with the apostles with him. And verse 15 says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So it's a holy gathering because it's a Passover event. Now the Passover was that annual feast remembering God's deliverance through the death of an innocent lamb. You took an innocent lamb, you put the blood over the doorposts, and that's how God's people were delivered. When they did that by faith, uh, they were delivered and they were passed over. The angel of death passed over them and they were delivered and and Pharaoh let them go. And it's this huge story of deliverance that the people of God would celebrate year after year and the Jewish people still celebrate the Passover. So it's holy because of that. But It's also holy because Jesus is going to insert himself into the ceremony. It's already holy, but then Jesus takes a step forward into this holy moment and says some things about himself. Now, next week, Pastor Craig is going to explore the importance of this event, the the Lord's Supper, 
of what's, what's about to take place in a more exclusive way, in a fuller way. So we're just going to kind of fly over this little section here, but it's more coming next week, so stay tuned. But notice the language. He says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The focus is going to be all about his suffering. And just look at the wording that he uses. In verse 16, it says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's a messianic promise. Verse 17, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among... I'm sorry, I missed my spot. Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 19, And he took bread... And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. So now he's inserting himself into the story and saying, This broken bread represents my body that's about to be broken in front of the whole world, crushed in front of people. And then it says, he says, uh, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they'd eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Again, inserting himself in the story. This is about me. And in verse 21 says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Another aspect of his suffering. The very hand who betrays him is right there with him. Been with him for multiple years, and with him even there at the table, his very hand on the table, and he's the one that's going to betray him. So it's holy that he's inserting himself into this story, and the language is all about his death. It's all about his suffering. It's all about his betrayal. And what he's communicating, which we'll see next week, is that he is the Passover. He's the fulfillment of something that's been years in, in the making. And years that's been celebrated, now he's saying, I'm this fulfillment. And in verse 20, we know that's what he's saying because this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's, he's ending something and he's starting something new. And it's all about his blood. His blood being poured out in love for sinners. This is the gospel message. When we gather, we remember the words of John when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what he said when he saw Jesus. He said, That's the Lamb right there. That's the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And the disciples didn't quite get that when he said it. And they, they're not really gathering it intellectually even now. But this is what Jesus is saying. Remember, I told you all these things. And here in this holy gathering, in this holy moment, he's saying, I am the Lamb of God, and I'm here to take away the sins of the world. Now, if you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, let me speak to you for just a second. Maybe you're curious. Maybe you're, you're leaning in, but you, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you don't necessarily believe all of these things, and you've got a lot of questions, and you're wondering, what in the world is this all about? Why are a bunch of people on a Sunday evening gathered together in a building singing songs? What's, what's happening here? Is this all just religious duty? Or are we trying to earn a favor from God? Maybe he'll answer a prayer or something like that. Uh, no, the reason that we're gathered to sing together 
is because we remember week after week the truth that the Lamb of God has taken away our sins. See, the gospel message is that sin separates us from God. Your sin and my sin separates us from God, separates us from our creator, separates us from the one who made us and designed us to be in a relationship with him. Our sins, the evil that we've done, thought, wanted to do, separates us from God, separates us from the one who who we should not be separated from, separated uh, originally in the story of Adam and Eve, kicked them out of the garden of paradise where that was ultimate celebration and union with God and communion with God. And they got kicked out of the garden. We followed right in their footsteps And our sin separates us from God. But the gospel message is that there is one who has come who has taken away our sins by his death and through his resurrection. God's approving of his death on the cross. Now, this is the gospel message. This is what we we do when we get together. And sometimes we forget, don't we? Christians forget this too. We get revved up about this or this or this. And sometimes we're gathering, we're thinking about the things that were going on earlier today and the things that we're, we're heading out to. And, you know, my kid's doing this and I wish I'd, you know, iron my kid's shirt or whatever it is. There's all kinds of things that we can think of in here, but we need to behold. Behold the Lamb of God has taken away our sins. And that's, that's why it's holy when we gather, we remember the gospel message. Well, Jesus is starting this ceremony, which we're looking at next week. He's beginning this, this holy moment. He's talking about his love. He's talking about his suffering, his mercy, his grace. He's talking about, I'm going to be betrayed. My blood, the blood that's in my body right now is about to be poured out. It's about to come out, poured out. You're going to see blood being drained from my body publicly on a public square in, in, in front of a kangaroo court. I'm going to suffer. They're going to put a crown of thorns on my head and they're going to mock me. They're going to put a robe around me and mock me publicly and say, prophesy who hit you. And I'm going to suffer seriously. And so he's just, and that's because I love you. I love you. That's what he's saying to these disciples. It's all about my mercy and grace and love on display in front of the whole world for all time. So it's holy. He is the Passover lamb. So all the disciples should just be amazed and marveling and and worshiping and just saying, tell me more, tell me more. And instead, we see in verse 24, the exact opposite take place. So in verse 24, we see a major dispute. I don't know if you've ever come into a holy gathering or a worship gathering on a Sunday and you just got, ha- got done having a major dispute. Has that ever happened to anybody? You're all a bunch of liars. I think the, the time when uh, all the fights break out is probably on the way to church. So, uh, yeah, so it happens to us and it happened to them. Here is this holy moment, this amazing gathering, the first inaugural kind of Christian worship service. Jesus is saying, do this from now on. And right in the middle of this, uh, it says a dispute also arose among them. A little, little argument takes place as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. They they, they say, basically, we're, we're sorry to interrupt you, Jesus. I know we're talking about your blood being poured out here. I know we're talking about 
you know, your death and all. Uh, but we need to settle something here. We've got an issue, and uh, we're trying to figure out who among the 12 here are the greatest. Who's the best? And that's literally what they're, they're arguing for. What are they arguing about? They're saying, uh, Jesus, we need you to know uh, that I'm the best. I should be regarded as the greatest. So they're having this, this, uh, this time in front of Jesus, and they're arguing in front of him. Can you imagine this? It's hard, to, it's hard to imagine, but I think sometimes we elevate the disciples far beyond reality. Like, they were like you and I. And, uh, and here they're, they're just arguing in front of Jesus. Uh, one saying, I'm, I'm best. You know that I'm the best because of this, this, and this. Another one's hearing that saying, no, that's not true. I'm the best. Remember that time when you did this and I didn't do that? And, oh, yeah, well, well what, about my, what about me? And so they're just doing this. And Jesus is sitting there listening to them. They're... And if you can imagine Jesus like face palm, just how long, you know, there's times in scripture where we hear him say, how long must I put up with you? I just feel like this is one of those moments where he'd say, oh, how long must I put up with you? We don't see this here. He's very patient. But anyway, I just imagine just what, what is he thinking when he's hearing these disciples just argue in, in front of him? And the amazing thing is, is that this has been an ongoing argument in front of Jesus. Earlier in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9, the exact same thing has already happened. This is a repeat offense. This is something that has been ongoing. It's not something that he settled among the disciples and then they never argued or got rattled again and they just kind of moved on. No, he, this is a repeated I- issue. He's, ha- he's having to go back and remind them of something he's already said. In Luke 9, it says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Exact same argument. This multiple chapters ahead of the story, earlier on in their discipleship. And Jesus, it says, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. I'm sure he got the okay from mom, but he just said, okay, let me take this child and let me put this child in front of a bunch of adults acting like children. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He's already said, the one who is least is the one who is great. And they heard it, and then they forgot it, because they forget things like you and I forget things. And here they're back at it, arguing again in front of the king of kings as to who is the greatest instead of recognizing who really is the greatest in the circle, and that's Christ. Well, we could ask the question, why are they arguing about who is the greatest? Well, it doesn't say all the reasons why, but I bet if we think about it and and look at the context of the situation, we could probably come up with a few reasons. How about comparing one with the other? See, they... They were arguing about things that you and I argue about. Maybe we're not as uh, vocal out loud in front of people or something like that. Maybe we've got a little bit more of a filter. Uh, But they're comparing and we can compare. I mean, think about it this way. Uh, The disciples, these 12, were a subgroup of a larger group of the 72 disciples already mentioned in the book of Luke. 
So when Jesus did discipleship, he had different sizes of groups and different goals with each size of group. So he had 72 disciples. And it was a privileged thing to be among these 72 that he's investing in, he's pouring into, he's giving instruction to, and they're hearing that, and they're being discipled. Well, among that 72, he had his 12 uniquely that he's pouring into, that he's, that he's teaching and instructing, and he's going to give authority to these 12. And that, that's a privileged place to be among these 12. So it'd be, you'd think like they would be very happy about this, this place and this calling that they've been given, this kind of uh, you know, intimate discipleship that Jesus is giving to them. But even among the 12, Jesus had three Peter, James, and John, that he, he would invite them to sit some things that he wouldn't invite the other ones to. And the other ones would see that. Jesus is spending some little extra time with those other three, and I didn't get invited to the party, and I'm a little jealous about that. And I'm comparing myself why I wasn't invited to that. Not thinking about, I'm overjoyed that I get the special investment that some of the 72 didn't get, just aware of the fact that the three are getting a little bit more than I'm getting. And even among the three, there was the one. So among those three, Jesus spent a special amount of time with John. And you can imagine what those other two thought when Jesus would spend a little more time investing in and teaching and training and instructing the one. So, I mean, comparing and the sin of comparing probably, at one point or another, uh, touched the hearts of these young men. And why, why I think that is because, well, they're young men, and, and young men are ambitious. So think about this as another thing. The, all, all of these disciples, all of them, are ambitious young men. Uh, one's a you know, tax collector trying to work his way up very quickly. Uh, the rest are fishermen, starting, kind of starting their own business. Uh, one is a, in a tribe called the Zealots, which is just this crazy group of people trying to like overthrow the government and stuff. I mean, all of the disciples are like sort of young, ambitious men that just need to be steered a certain way. They need to be invested in and pointed in the right direction. And Jesus calls them, and they come, and they give up everything to, to follow Jesus. And, and so they're ambitious. They're ready for something. They, they may even be thinking, maybe that with this new following that Jesus has, that he's going to overthrow the Roman government and maybe then they become even more important in society if and when that takes place. So they're ambitious. Now, not all ambition is, is bad. There is a godly ambition. The scripture talks about a godly ambition, which is where you're you're just in love with the Lord and, and wanting to serve people and loving other people, and you're ambitious to serve God with your gifts and your abilities, and you go for it. But there's also a selfish ambition. So in James, we hear, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, those two things are always tied together. So jealousy and selfish ambition. Selfish ambition being synonymous for a manifestation of just jealousy. Bitter, jealousy, selfish ambition, don't boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, those two things connected, when, where they exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. That's what we see happening here. We start to see some disorder taking place at the table. 
The other thing that I think of, of why they're probably arguing is that they're, they're immature. They are honestly immature. We don't know the ages of these disciples, but we know that they're young, and there's a lot of debate as to the ages of the disciples. We don't have an exact age. But we know uh, only one or two or three at most were married. So they're, they're young single men. And that, since we don't know the ages, some have said they're probably in their 20s. Some have said they might even be teenagers. That, that revolutionizes your thinking in terms of student ministry. I mean, here, they could be 16, 17, 18, and Jesus is investing in them and calling them the apostles that's going to carry his name to the nations. Uh, so here's what, here's, regardless of their exact age, they're immature because they'll say things that they regret later. They say things that are silly. They're presumptuous. Um, they just say, they, it's not just Peter. I mean, Peter's always Peter, but John says silly things. They all say things that they don't, that they don't mean. So they're immature. And sometimes we can redefine discipleship to, to mean that, you know, discipleship is only times when we encourage already mature believers to be a little bit more mature. And that's always an aspect of discipleship for we never stop growing, we never stop developing, we never stop transforming more and more into his image. And believers who are, have been believers for many, many years always need encouragement. We are more in need of encouragement, I think, these days than ever before. So we always need encouragement and we always need to mature. But discipleship also means helping an immature person grow up, helping an immature person. And these disciples are immature. And the only way that we, we help somebody that's immature or somebody that's young to grow up and to develop is to invest in them, to pour into them, to give them time to invest and give of our lives. And sometimes it's messy and we would rather avoid the mess. Thank you very much. But disciples aren't made otherwise. And Jesus pours his life into these young men and he's, he's heard them argue and grumble and complain about the same thing over and over again. And here he is teaching again hearing them again at this holy moment dispute about who is the greatest. And that's when he brings a radical teaching. So look at verse 25. It says, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So this is a little bit new from anything they've heard before. He's using the illustration of the kings of the Gentiles who are exercising lordship. And then he uses the word benefactors. Everybody see that? So in the Roman world, the emperor modeled what the wealthy elite should do in every city. So here's how it worked. And this still works this way in certain countries. Uh, Instead of paying taxes and those taxes being overseen in this accountable place and then those taxes being distributed to where the needs were, the emperor modeled that the wealthy elite, which were often these soldiers that, you know, got the blessing of the emperor and all this money, they would settle in the cities and then they could choose to do whatever they wanted to do with their money whenever they wanted to do it. And and it it would bless the city. But whatever they chose to give to, it would, it would, all the people around that, 
that project would then give honor and privilege and praise, and then he would, they would just kind of be in his pocket. And that's how it worked all over the place. So you can imagine a ton of corruption would take place. The only people that could self-advance in this society were the wealthy elite. Everybody else just had to give homage to the benefactor. So the benefactor did whatever he liked in exchange for honor, in exchange for status. So wealth equaled authority, and that equaled honor. Jesus has warned the disciples against this kind of chasing after status and honor. Because if you, if you just buddied up to the benefactor, you, you could get it. And that's what the scribes were doing. So do you remember Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. So oftentimes the scribes would just buddy up with the benefactor and then they'd get all the blessings and the promotions and the wealth and the prestige and then they would get what the benefactor had, all the honor, all the praise. And he says in verse 26, really strongly, but not so with you. Jesus is just saying, not at all. Not among my people, not among the church, not among my disciples, not among those who who follow me. So if they're thinking that he's going to overthrow the Greco-Roman government, and then he's going to do with them what the emperor did with the benefactors, he's like, that's not what's going to happen. Not this side of eternity. Not so with you. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. As the youngest. This is a repeat of what he said in chapter 9. When he took a child and he put a child, he says, you know, come with me, buddy. Come on, come on over here. And put a child right in front of them. And I don't imagine what this kid's doing, just kind of looking around like, okay. And, uh, and they're all staring at this child. He said, be like this child. And he says the same thing here. Be, become as the youngest. Now, what is it about being like a child? And how are we to think about you know, being like a child. Because we've heard that, if you've been around uh, Scripture, if you've, you've heard that phrase, you need childlike faith. And maybe that could be puzzling. Like, what do you mean childlike faith? I don't know how to, I don't know how to have childlike faith uh, as, a, as a man. Like, how do I do that, you know? And I'm sure that these disciples were, were maybe thinking the exact same thing. He said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So how do you do that? Well, I don't think he's talking about in their development, their emotional or physical development. I don't think he's saying you need to all be children in the sense of being, be naive, you know, intentionally naive or intentionally foolish or make poor decisions, or argue in front of me, because they've got that down. They are really good at that. They're really good at acting foolish in front of Jesus. So I'm not, I know he's not saying that. I mean, he's addressing that. He's addressing their childish behavior. He's not saying be more childish. He's, he's addressing that. I think he's talking about their dependence for help and direction and resources from him. That's what a child needs desperately from a parent. A child needs help. A child can't self-advance. 
A child can't move forward in life without the intervention of a parent or guardian or helper, somebody from the outside who can step in and help and protect and nourish and instruct and discipline and care and love and steer in the right direction. So he says, be like that. Never mature beyond your understanding that you're a child in need of help, in need of direction, and in need of resources. I think that's how we humble ourselves like a child. And here here tonight, all of us have something that we need to trust God more for, like a child. You've talked about it. You've debated it. You've shared it on social media. You've maybe thought a ton about it. But maybe the call of God is to trust God more with it. To, like a child, to say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. I'm trusting you like a child. I'm, I'm still in my thinking mature about it. I'm not you know, behaving childishly, but I'm depending upon you for help. I need your help. That's the most mature thing that you and I can do here tonight is with empty hands, look up to our Father and say, I need your help. I don't have the ingenuity. I don't have the answers. I don't have the resources. I'm not, I don't have it all. I don't have anything. There's such a freeing place when we come to that place to say, I'm I'm a child staring up at a father in need of your help and I'm dependent upon you. I think that's how we humble ourselves like a child. So he says, be like the youngest. And then he goes on to say, and the leader as one who serves. Leadership is such a big deal these days. It's everywhere. I mean, it's, you'll hear it all throughout the political campaigns and debates. Leadership, 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 leadership. It's all about leadership. Well, what is leadership? Jesus defines it. Leader, be as one who serves. The, that's what the leader is. One who serves. Verse 27 says, For who is the greater one who reclines at table or the one who serves? You ever see that question in verse 27? Who's greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? I mean, you can see the disciples saying, okay, I, I, I'm tracking with you. And then he asks the question again to make sure that you get what I'm talking about. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? In other words, you think about a great banquet, you think about a fancy dinner, you think about a huge ceremony. Is not the greatest in this society the one who reclines at the table, right? That's the, that's the greatest. So when you think of this huge feast or this huge banquet, is it not the person who's reclining at the table that the ceremony or the banquet's all about? And then he says, but I am among you as the one who serves He's literally saying, imagine the fanciest banquet and dinner or feast that you can imagine. Just think of that. And they've, they've got that in their heads. I can imagine that. And think about all the dignitaries and all the honorary people who are sitting at this table, and they're, they're thinking about that. And he says, is not the greatest one, the, the, the one that people are, are serving? And they're like, yes. And then he says, I'm the waiter. I'm the waiter. If you want to know where I am on that scene, I'm the one who is serving everybody. In the Gospel of John, which isn't included here in Luke 22, 
we have this interesting detail, this interesting illustration about this moment. While he's giving this teaching, it says this, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. That's what a servant did in those days. That's what a slave did. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that is wrapped around him. That's not more humble than the cross on which he died, but it's an image that we rarely think about. And that's why it's so shocking. The cross should shock us every time we say it, think about it, mention it. It should shock us that the Son of God would die on a wooden cross for us. But we, we think about it a lot. We've heard it. We, we've said it. I mean, I, I can say it and I can, uh, you know, I can see it's something that we've heard many, many times and we'll continue to talk about it. But this picture of humility, not more humble, just less recognized, is just, just as amazing and shocking, isn't it? He pours water in a basin. He goes around to disciples' dirty feet. Now, Feet weren't any uh, less gross in those days than they are now. They were more gross. And he went down at, that, at their level, and he's going around washing the disciples' feet with his hands. I mean, you, you can imagine how they're thinking and what they're thinking and what you would say in this moment. Peter, who just says the first thing that comes out of his mouth, says, no, you're not going to do this with me. And Jesus puts him in his place and says, if you don't let me wash you, you can have no part of me. And then Peter's like, okay, well, fine, just give me a bath then. You know, that's essentially what he says. Uh, And he says, no, I'm not going to do that either. I'm washing your feet, and I'm going to show you how you're supposed to wash other people's feet. He says in verse 15 of, of John, in 13, John 13, he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, Jesus is serving his disciples and washing their feet, and then him putting his arms out on a cross and letting the blood pour out of his body. He's serving. He's serving us. And one of the most amazing sections of the scriptures in Luke 12, where Jesus says, I'm never going to stop serving. I'll never stop serving you. In Luke 12, it says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. That means alive with his spirit in us. That doesn't mean physically out of bed. It just means alive with his Holy Spirit in us. It says, Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, Have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. NIV translates that, and wait on them. It says, I'm never going to stop doing this. I'm never going to stop serving you. I'm serving you now. I've served you your whole life. I've served you when I died on the cross. I served you in the manger when I came I'm never going to stop. I'm always going to serve you. You're always going to be receiving from me. That's not going to stop after 100 years in heaven. 
It'll just, he'll always be serving us and we'll always be receiving from him and we'll be serving him back. Yes, we'll be serving one another for sure, but he is always going to have that holy, privileged, worshipful place. So the next time you spot a celebrity at the restaurant, ever do that? Ever spot a celebrity at the restaurant? It's only happened to me one time. It wasn't even really a celebrity, but as close as they come with me. And the Lord reminded me to not be so amazed at this guy that's sitting and reclining at the table. Because in the kingdom of heaven, it's the one who's serving, not the one who's receiving. So what should this teach us? Let's wrap up this way. I think at at least when we gather to worship Christ, we've got to remember that we gather to serve one another. We who are awake with his very spirit, Jesus says, you are members of my body. That's what Ephesians 5.29 says. We are members of his body. That's a holy thing. He being the head, we being members. And it's a holy thing when he identifies himself among us. Yes, we annoy one another. Yes, we sin against one another. Yes, all of those things are true because we're all sinners. But we've been uh, placed in his family and we are part of his body and his righteousness and his love is poured out over us and in us. He spiritually identifies with his people. So when I serve another person in church, I'm serving the Lord Christ. When I'm speaking to another person, I'm speaking to one for whom Jesus spilled his blood for. When I'm talking about somebody, I'm talking about somebody for whom Jesus spilled his blood for. And and is serving now. Jesus is serving that person. And so I'm, when I'm serving them, I'm just entering into what he's already been doing. So we're members of his body. We're supposed to care for our bodies and care for one another, love one another, serve in any, any way that we can. So that's the second way that this, I think this should teach us is that no job is unimportant when we gather together. How can it be? How can there be an unimportant job. Think about it. There can't be. There are varying gifts, for sure. God gifts us in various ways, administratively and musically and speaking and teaching and welcoming and greeting and all kinds of different ways. God has gifted us and blessed us, and we're supposed to use all of those gifts, but no job is beneath any of, any of us, right? No job. No job is more important. No job is elevated. I know we live in a celebrity culture. The stage gets elevated. Anything that shows up on a screen gets elevated. But, but not so among you. That's what Jesus says. That's not to be among you. We're to serve one another, care for one another, encourage one another, and take any job that's needed in order to help other people experience God when we gather together on Sundays. On March 8th, uh, Craig already mentioned, we're going to have a ministry team's Fair, talking specifically about all kinds of opportunities for you and I to serve. And we're approaching that with that kind of heart that whatever gift we've been given, we've got to use that to serve one another. And we've got to make room for people to serve. And there's going to be lots and lots of opportunity when we get to Frisco Square to serve. And we can't have this idea that, well, uh, this job is important and this job is unimportant. It's It's all important. It's all needed. Uh, lastly, we've got to have the perspective that no person is insignificant. No person. 
No age is more important than another age. No season of life, no unique challenge that a person is going through is, is more important than another challenge. All people, when we gather together, are important and, and, and significant. So Jesus had to regularly tell his disciples, lift up your eyes off of yourself. Look out. Look out at the harvest. Look out at the people. He would say it again and again, and they were always trying to say things like, uh, you know, let's send them away so that they can get food. And he would say, you provide food for them. You, they're coming to you. It's the first thing you should be thinking is serving them, not sending them away, but serving them. Well, those people are messy, and those people have issues, and those people have problems. And he's like, you have issues, and you have problems, and you're a mess. Serve them. Serve them just as they are. They're not unimportant. I've come for them, and I'm calling them to you. And uh, the, the towel scene in John 13, he concludes with these words, and that's how we'll, cl- we'll close here tonight. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Man, if we could just grab hold of that. We're not greater than Jesus. <laughs> That's pretty simplistic, right? I, I won't charge for that advice. Uh, you and I are not greater than Jesus. He is constantly serving. And we better not think we should avoid serving, you know, lest we stop receiving all of his grace that he wants to pour into our hearts and lives. So he says, you're not greater than your master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. He says, if you know these things, this is kind of dangerous. He says, if you know these things, Blessed are you if you do them. So we could know this and not do them and miss the blessing. That's what he says. You could know it and just choose not to do it. If you choose not to do it, you'll miss the blessing that God wants to pour into your life and into your So we're going to stand and we're going to close with a song and we're going to just take a moment, pray and ask the Lord to show us in our hearts where and how and maybe a new attitude we should take to this idea of serving. Maybe begin looking for some new opportunities to serve and really to enter into and receive the blessing that God wants to pour into our hearts. So let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.